What up, everybody? I'm Ed, and this is Current History, where today I'm going to talk to you about some stuff that I've been reading all about recently, which is some labor history, as in the history of regular, normal working people in the United States. Now, whenever I read about history of most times, the, the history that I'm interested in particularly is political history and government history, which... Nine times out of ten means that normal people don't really have any impact on the kind of stuff that I read about. Like whether or not a king is on the throne or whether or not a republic is overthrown really has little to do with what most people are up to through most of time. Now, if you zoom back to most any time in the last 200 years, if you were to say, what are most Americans up to, it's working. Spending all damn day making stuff, working in a factory, uh, farming, doing labor, which makes most people laborers. And I'm interested in the history of that group of people today. Now, I got set off on this little journey by a tweet from a woman named Wendy Rogers, who is a state senator from Arizona, who tweeted, quote, Labor Day is a communist holiday, end quote. Now, Wendy Rogers, you know this lady is just a peach, because her Wikipedia page has fun headlines like unsuccessful campaigns in 2010, 2012, 2014, 2016, and 2018. That just speaks to perseverance. Uh, also has fun headlines like affiliations with militia group and attempt to subvert outcome of 2020 presidential election. <sighs> so, me and Wendy Rogers would probably not get along. But, is her statement accurate? Is Labor Day really a communist holiday? Now, it was this question that set me off doing some internet research, which then set me off ordering books, which then set me off writing multiple podcasts, uh, including hopefully one we'll get to later on private detective agencies that were used to break up unions. But, all of that is so far down the rabbit hole. We are here today to focus on the main, the important question. Is Labor Day a communist holiday? Now, we will dive straight into that as soon as we get back from this ad break of me pitching you doing podcasts. Do podcasts, I guess. Here we go. All right, everybody, now let's get into the history. So first, I need everyone to step onto my magic school bus, because we're going back to America in the 1890s. It's a time only 30 years after the Civil War. America's getting back together, but still is not like a full-on world power. But we are starting to become a major industrial power, which means that for working people, life really, really sucks. Uh, the economy has quickly transitioned from being mostly agriculture, where everyone like owns farms or works on farms, to a lot of people having to work in factories. And what that means is your family farm stopped being profitable. Over time, you had to sell everything, you went into debt, and that meant in order to scrape money together, you need to send your men off to the cities to work in terrible conditions to pay for the family to live. So, that means that the average American 
works something like 12-hour days, seven days a week. Can get that bad. It also means that there are zero child labor laws, so children start being hired at factories starting at five years old, you know, because their tiny little hands can get into the sharp, quick-moving machines better than adults. Most working conditions were super unsafe, with very little access to fresh air, very rarely adequate bathrooms, and hardly any breaks in long, long days doing back-breaking labor. So, because of all these terrible conditions, strikes and unrest for better working condition were just constantly at the edge of boiling over into strikes and riots and protests. Now, what was it that these people wanted? Well, mainly they wanted stuff like an eight-hour workday, as well as safer conditions and higher pay. In Illinois, Many workers and federal employees were supposed to already be on an eight-hour workday by federal law since 1867, but the federal government had failed to enforce its own law, and employees were often forced to sign waivers that nullified the law as a condition of employment. This was a really common problem for the government to run into because one of the baseline assumptions that our government has is that they exist to protect the rights of people to make contracts. And so if I make a contract with you that says, hey, I waive the safety restrictions, I'm okay with uh, my company not paying extra to shore up the mine walls, then, hey, that's a private contract and the government shouldn't interfere. Except if everyone is forced to sign a contract like that to ever get a job, what's the point of safety restrictions? And then we're all just working in a capitalist hellscape. Which is what's happening here. But, everywhere, there were protests calling for the eight-hour workday. And they had some slogans, like one of the popular ones was like a kind of sing-songy quote, Eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. Or, shortened to, shortening the hours, increase the pay. So one of the organizers of one of these events calling for an eight-hour workday was a woman named Lucy Parsons, who had been born a slave in Texas in 1853. Now, Lucy was of African-American, Native American, and Mexican heritage, and had worked for the Freedmen's Bureau after the Civil War, attempting to help with Reconstruction. In support of an eight-hour workday, Lucy had organized a peaceful march of 35,000 workers, now, all of this came right around the same time, with all these worker protests, as a strike at the McCormick Reaper plant. Now, the McCormick Reaper was a machine that he had invented that were, was pulled by horses that automatically harvested grain, and he had a huge factory producing these reapers and selling them all over the world from Chicago. Now, workers in this plant went on strike, demanding an eight-hour workday when 60-hour work weeks were the norm. That is, 10 hours a day, 6 days a week was the regular amount of work at this plant. So when the workers went on strike, the plant owners locked all the workers out and brought in strikebreaker workers under the protection of 400 police officers. When the end of the day bell sounded and the strikers surged to the gate of the plant to confront the strikebreakers while they were leaving, 
the police opened fire on the crowd, killing between two and six people. This really angered the working people of Chicago, including some anarchists who were angry with the killing of workers and decided to organize a meetup and some angry speeches in Haymarket Square. So this brings us to the Haymarket Affair in Chicago in 1886. And the funny thing about this story is that it's completely different depending on what sources you look at. So disagreement starts just at the name you call it, from the centrist position of Haymarket Affair to the rich industrialist description of Haymarket Riot, and then the labor movement calling it the Haymarket Massacre. Now, in my opinion, riot doesn't really fit, because everyone seemed to pretty much be chillin' till the shooting and bombing starts, and Massacre fits better because a ton of people died, so I'm going with the Haymarket Massacre. Now, the story of the Haymarket Massacre starts with sporadic strikes for an eight-hour workday. And then that strike at the McCormick Reaper plant that leads to violence between police and workers, ending in several strikers dead. So labor leaders, socialists, and pro-union anarcho-syndicalist activists organize a meeting at Haymarket Square to protest the killing of workers. So that's labor leaders, like leaders of unions, leaders of local groups. Socialists, as in people agitating for, like, radicalism, the overthrow of the government, and implementing socialism. And then you've got anarchists, particularly these anarcho-syndicalists, who essentially are kind of next door to socialists, in that anarcho-syndicalists want to have all the workers form unions, have those unions take over companies, and then kind of take over the world through taking over everything via unions. Anyway, all of these groups have a dog in the fight and are pissed at the killing of workers. So flyers start going up around town with the headline, Revenge, Working Men to Arms. But one of the main speakers, August Spies, said he would not speak unless the call for working men to show up armed was removed. So they tore those down and printed new ones to spread everywhere. So here is where things get fuzzy and partisan, depending on your sources. So there's the kind of centrist version of one of the speakers urged the shrinking crowd, as it had started to rain, to throttle the law. So the police decided to intervene and order the crowd to disperse. Clashes between protesters and police lead to a bomb being thrown from the side of the protesters, which killed several police officers. The officers in the crowd then exchanged fire, and several workers and police officers die in the ensuing violence. So that's kind of your middle-of-the-road description of the events of, you know, people were fighting, a bomb or two was thrown, shots were fired, but who could say who was bad and who was good? If you go into the labor accounts, they say that the anarchists were speaking about some pretty radical stuff, and the police decided that they didn't like the tone of some of this, like, rah-rah, down-with-the-government stuff that was being said, and began attacking people. Following that, a bomb was thrown that killed several police officers, and then the police began firing wildly in the confusion, killing several people and wounding each other. Seven total police were killed, while four to eight workers were killed, and 30 to 40 more were injured. 
And then, finally, you have the police version of events, which is that after the bomb was thrown, the demonstrators fired on the police, who valiantly returned fire. But that account is a little undercut by an anonymous police officer who told the Chicago Tribune, quote, A very large number of the police were wounded by each other's revolvers. It was every man for himself, and while some got two or three squares away, the rest emptied their revolvers, mainly into each other. End quote. So essentially, that guy is saying that half the police ran, half the police just started dumping shots left and right all over the place, hitting police officers and civilians. By the end of this little rodeo, seven policemen are killed, with 60 policemen wounded. The estimated civilian dead or wounded was roughly 50 people laying in the street, and it's hard to tell how many were casualties versus how many were wounded, because many of the wounded didn't seek medical attention because they feared arrest. No matter what the specifics of what happened are, whether or not the strikers and the protesters fired first, or whether or not the police fired first, or who was responsible or whatever, at the end of the day, somebody threw a bomb and killed seven cops. And so a lot of people weren't interested in hearing both sides of anything and wanted this problem solved. So, while labor presented this as a cruel attack by police on organized labor exercising their free speech rights, for industrialists, and therefore the media and the government, this was crazy anarchists throwing bombs, killing cops, and ruining America. So this inspired a crackdown by the police on labor activism around the United States and around the world. Like, all over the place, people said, hmm, like, immigrants came with their anarchism and they did political activism and pissed all the workers off and threw bombs at cops. It's time to crack down on these anarchists, these labor leaders, these socialists. All of these groups are just rabble-rousers who are going to have bombs being thrown on our streets. Now, local to Chicago, it meant that labor leaders were rounded up, their homes were raided without search warrants, and union newspapers were closed down. The Chicago police implemented an eight-week shakedown of labor activists, ransacking meeting halls and places of business, particularly focusing on newspapers, particularly the anarchist ones that had supported this event. Now, the police began rounding up random anarchists who ran papers or gave speeches, whether or not they were there on the day. And a bunch of these anarchist thought leaders were recent German immigrants, and I have no idea why there were so many German anarchists running around. What the heck was going on in Germany in the 1880s where they were just exporting anarchists all over the place? Anyway, these anarchists had been using some inflammatory language before the police intervened, obviously. Not to victim blame, because it was still police brutality and just wanton violence to shoot into the crowd. But one of the men, named August Spies, published a leaflet about the workers killed at the McCormick Reaper works entitled Working Men to Arms, so it was a little hard to argue that everything was, that the goal was perfectly peaceful. Spies also had given a speech at the Haymarket Square, standing on a hay wagon, where he talked about the good, honest, law-abiding, church-going citizens killed at the McCormick factory. So he knew how to speak to America. 
Now, because of all of this rounding up, eight men go to trial as accessories to the murder of the police. Now, this process is some kangaroo court BS. They end up with a judge who's heavily biased against them. The jury is rotated until it was filled with people ideologically hostile to labor activism. So they just kept kicking out jury members until they had a full jury of people who were anti-socialist, anti-anarchist in general. Then, they had no clear evidence connecting anyone that they were trying to actually throwing the bomb. And some of the men weren't even there on the day of the bombing. They were just anarchists who ran newspapers or had talked about stuff in public. But people didn't really care. The, the, Chicago, the Chicago Tribune offered to pay money for the jury if they found the eight men guilty. That's kind of the environment that we're existing in right now. So, of course, the jury found all eight men guilty, and seven of the eight are sentenced to death. Half get executed, and half survive till 1893 and are pardoned by the governor of Illinois after reviewing how batshit their trial was. My favorite part of the story, in 1893, a statue was put up in Haymarket Square to commemorate the incident. Was the statue there to commemorate the workers who died? No, it was a statue dedicated to the police officers that were killed. Well, this statue has become a regular target of vandalism, especially annually on May 1st. The statue has been bombed, painted, and generally messed with for years until the 1970s when it was moved inside the Chicago Police Training Academy to protect it from any more acts of vandalism. So, the Haymarket Massacre triggered labor outrage worldwide and socialists made political hay out of the martyred workers of the struggle for the eight-hour workday. The socialists have a big meeting to work together called the Second International. The First International had been both socialists and anarchists, but the anarchists had been kicked out and they now had their own separate thing. Now, at the Second International, there was as much disagreement as you always find among a pile of lefties who all have big ideas, but one of the things they agreed on was making May 1st Labor Day to commemorate the workers who were killed in the Haymarket Massacre. So in the U.S., half of the labor movement observed the May 1st Labor Day, while the other half would celebrate the first Monday in September. This May 1st date was much more associated with communism after the Russian Revolution in 1918. And then in 1955, in the midst of the Cold War, May 1st was deemed Loyalty Day to celebrate America and not remember workers killed by cops. And then in the 1960s, as a protest of Soviet policy, May 1st was proclaimed the Rule of Law Day, again to celebrate America and not remember workers killed by cops. But that's not our actual Labor Day. Now... Getting to actual Labor Day, and not May 1st, which is usually referred to in the United States as May Day, uh, we can start by going off the official story on the House.gov website, which is that in 1894, Grover Cleveland signed a bill making Labor Day and setting it as the first weekend of September. The move was popular with unions, and a time off work to organize, a recognition of workers, and a free day off. Score. Yeah, that's the official version. Uh, let's get a little bit more behind the curtain there, little Mr. Wizard of Oz. 
Okay, so the real story of Labor Day starts with the Pullman Rail Company strike of 1893. So the Pullman Rail Company, they didn't actually run any trains. They made fancy rail wagons, like doing upholstery and stuff within them. So in the 1890s, there was a major economic downturn. So Pullman fired many people and cut wages across the board in the plant by 30%. Now, that might not have been so horrendous, except that Pullman also kept all of his workers in what was called a company town, and every worker bought all their supplies from the company's store. And when Pullman cut wages 30%, he didn't lower rent or lower the prices at the company-controlled store. He just said, all right, everyone make do with one-third less, and you still have to buy everything from me at the same price. Now, this did not leave people happy with old Pullman, and so they started striking. So, one company striking, one plant striking, isn't really the source of much major problems. But what goes wrong with the Pullman Rail Company strike is that the ARU, the American Railway Union, led by Eugene Debs, starts to try to help the strike because some of their members are um, members of the Pullman Rail Company strike. And so they tell all of their switchmen who run all of the railroads to not let any trains through that have a Pullman car on board. So this is what's called a sympathy strike, which is other companies in unrelated industries like join the strike, but just for the target of your strike. So say I worked at Walmart and I uh, like I'm a shipping and receiving guy in the back and I go, we we all form a union. We all go on strike against Walmart, which they would hate, by the way. This is why they run all kinds of anti-union propaganda. But. If other people struck against Walmart, if other companies said, we won't sell things in Walmart until you cave to your workers, and all the shipping companies say, we won't move any Walmart trucks until you talk to your workers, if you get other people to join in a sympathy strike that aren't even part of the business, you can crush a business from many angles, and it helps to build pressure on them to fold to the union. So as these switchmen refused to let trains by, those switchmen were fired by the railroad, which triggered a strike by all of the rail employees within the American Railroad Union. So these strikes begin paralyzing rail traffic all the way from Chicago to the West Coast. Huge swaths of territory, just trains aren't getting through. Switchmen won't uh, let any trains with Pullman... Uh, carts on them through, and once they get fired, everyone walks off. So all of this activity attracts the attention of the federal government, who starts making decisions to intervene uh, on the basis of things like the mail not getting through, as well as request for a court order uh, on evidence of destruction caused by the striking workers, who in some cases had like torn up rails or had destroyed rail cars. So this injunction comes down from an anti-union judge, and this court injunction says 
uh, cites the Interstate Commerce Clause and the Sherman Antitrust Act, two laws that kind of the purpose of them is to prevent monopolies from forming that would uh, harm interstate transit and trade. But it also means that if you are, say, a union and your organization causes harm to interstate trade, they can intervene to smack down those practices, which they do with this injunction. So this court-ordered injunction is granted, and Eugene Debs, the head of the American Railway Union, is ordered to stop the railroad union members from continuing the sympathy strike. When this order is not carried out, the feds decide to deploy the National Guard. And what the actual order to the head people of the American Railway Union says is that they're legally prevented from, quote, compelling or inducing by threats, intimidation, persuasion, force, or violence railway employees to refuse or fail to perform their duties. So essentially the court injunction says, hey, back off, stop, get out of here to the American Railroad Union. Now, in the middle of this tension, as the railroads are ground to a stop, is when good old Cleveland, the president, signs the bill creating Labor Day. So you got to remember that Cleveland is a Democrat, and unions are part of his constituency. So it was super awkward look to be crushing these labor movements with the National Guard. Cleveland was not pushing this bill at all. He just happened to be president when the bill was passed. And when a date was being selected for Labor Day, Cleveland specifically wanted to avoid the May 1st date because of its connection to both the Haymarket Massacre and the Socialist Selected Holiday, already associated with labor radicalism. Years after this debacle, Cleveland failed to win the Democratic nomination for president, and instead William, William Jennings Bryan goes on to lose the election to Republican William McKinley. So, part, maybe because of these things... The Democrats were not terribly strong going into the next election, and the president failed to win the nomination. So not great. Not a good sign of support from your party. But back to this strike, and as the rail system of the entire West is paralyzed, when the strikers are initially told about the court-ordered injunction, they ignore it and some members of the crowd begin destroying railcars and railroads in response to the feds trying to begin enforcing this injunction. This leads to even more troops being put in, and the federal troops arrive and things start to come to a head on July 7th, 1894. So right around this time is when Eugene Debs and his associates at the Railway Union were found guilty of contempt of court, based on, again, the Sherman Antitrust Act. So Debs is charged uh, for breaking the Sherman Antitrust Act, as well as for holding up the mail. Those are the two things that they can get him on. So he goes off to jail. At the same time that a violent crackdown begins on the crowds of people who, at this point, were very, very upset, were destroying things, setting things on fire, as the feds deployed troops. And... At one point, the National Guard fires on the crowd, and 26 workers are killed. Without any of these union leaders to order the strike called off, and with violence between workers and police pushing more violence, the situation began to deteriorate, and it seemed the strike would fall apart. 
So that firing on the crowd happens July 7th, only around a week and a half after signing the bill to create Labor Day on June 28th. So in addition to Debs being arrested, the railway also started hiring non-union employees, which start breaking the strike. And two weeks later, on July 20th, the Pullman Company offers to rehire the striking workers on condition that they sign a pledge to never join a union. Without any better options, many of the workers return to work and return to life in the company town, accepting the pay cut. Eugene Debs, that leader of the American Railway Union, goes to jail for about six months, where he starts reading the works of Karl Marx and later declares himself a socialist, helping to found the Socialist Party of America in 1901 and running as their candidate for president starting in 1900. Theodore Roosevelt called Debs one of the nation's most, quote, undesirable citizens and accused him of fomenting, quote, bloodshed, anarchy, and riot, end quote. Debs went on to shock the political system by winning 900,000 votes, or 6% of the vote, in the 1912 presidential election, more than Ralph Nader in 2000 or Gary Johnson and Jill Stein in 2016. So that's the end of the, the story of how Labor Day created. But I got a li little bit more on the eight-hour workday, which was not achieved in any solid form until FDR and the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act, which established our current environment where there's a 40-hour work week and overtime pay for many industries. The Fair Labor Standards Acts easily could have ended up not making it into law because at the time, the Supreme Court kept striking down major provisions of FDR's New Deal. The, the Supreme Court had struck down previous basic labor right bills, like in 1918 when they declared unconstitutional a law restricting child labor. Again, is like you have the right to make a contract, even if that contract is between a labor or is between a conglomerate mining company and a five-year-old to send down into the mines. So in 1923, the court had struck down a DC law setting a minimum wage for women. And frequently, these strikedowns were based on the idea that the government shouldn't interfere in those private contracts. Early in his presidency, Roosevelt signed a bill attempting to fight the economic slowdown of the Great Depression, and he passed the National Industrial Recovery Act, or the NRA. The NRA suspended antitrust law, called on industries to cooperate to reduce competition and promote higher wages. And as part of the NRA, Businesses were called on to limit to a 35 to 40 hour work week and pay a minimum wage of 12 to 15 dollars a week. So the idea was if everyone is working 60 to 80 hour weeks, if we pay people the same but cut the work back to 40 hours, we can hire more people and therefore fix the problems of high unemployment. So in 1935, the Supreme Court strikes down company restrictions and the labor provisions in that NRA bill in a case called the Sick Chicken Decision because it was a lawsuit over provisions in the bill to improve conditions in the poultry industry. The Supreme Court proceeded to strike down several more labor laws, frequently going back to that requirement that the government not interfere in a private contract. A particular whammy happened in the Tipaldo Decision, in which an employer named Tipaldo paid minimum wage, 
but then forced employees to sign a contract kicking back a portion of their wages to put them back below minimum wage. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, struck down the labor law requiring a minimum wage because it interfered with private contracts. So this brings us to the 1936 election, in which Roosevelt wins with 523 electoral votes to 8, and he decided that that was as good a support for the New Deal policies as anyone would ever get. After threatening to pack the court and then a massive re-election win, one of the justices, Owen Roberts, on the Supreme Court, suddenly started seeing things the way the president wanted breaking the deadlock and allowing New Deal laws to stick by voting with the liberals. When this switch in, alle in allegiance was proved steady, Roosevelt asked his Secretary of Labor, quote, what happened to that nice unconstitutional bill you had tucked away, end quote. So that act only applied to about one-fifth of the labor force, but it sp in specified industries, it banned oppressive child labor, set minimum wage to 25 cents an hour, and set the maximum work week at 44 hours. Roosevelt expressed a similar sentiment in a fireside chat the night before the signing. He warned, quote, Do not let any calamity-howling executive with an income of $1,000 a day tell you that a wage of $11 a week is going to have a disastrous effect on all American industry, end quote. So essentially saying, like, don't let rich people bitch and moan about how paying $1 more on the minimum wage is going to bankrupt them, when we can all see that they live in a frickin' mansion. But opponents of the bill charge that although the president might damn them as, quote, economic royalists and sweaters of labor, end quote, the Black Connery Bill was a bad bill badly drawn, which would lead the country to a tyrannical industrial dictatorship. They said New Deal rhetoric, like the smokescreen of the cuttlefish, diverted attention from what amounts to socialist planning. Prosperity, they insisted, depended on the genius of American business. But how could business, quote, find any time left to provide jobs if we are to persist in loading upon it these everlastingly multiplying governmental mandates and delivering it to the mercies of multiplying and hampering federal bureaucracy, end quote. In other words, boo-hoo-hoo, if I have to keep my workers alive and pay them, how will I ever stay in business? <sighs> but... All told, the bill had a rocky time through Congress, and during the legislative battles over fair labor standards, members of Congress had proposed 72 amendments. Almost every single one sought exemptions, narrowed coverage, lowered standards, weakened administration, limited investigation, or in some way worked to weaken the bill that is the basis of all of our modern labor rights. But at the end of the day, the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act uh, went into law, and it is one of the big reasons why we've got a standard of an eight-hour workday today. But I don't know if that standard is particularly sticking. The way I see it, a lot of the companies today that are trying to disrupt and innovate, what they're trying to disrupt and innovate is labor laws like this. 
Uber doesn't have to care if you work an eight-hour day, and they don't have to care if you're working in safe conditions, because you're not technically an employee, you're a contractor. And as everyone knows, you've got the power to sign into any contract you want, even if that contract takes away your basic human rights. <sighs> We're like very quickly sliding back to the days of 1890 on labor rights. But at least we've still got, like, Froyo and Chipotle to drown our sorrows in. For now. But I digress. We've got to come back to the true focus here. And what is that true focus, friends? Is Labor Day communist? Well, no. Labor Day is an old-timey political compromise to look better in the middle of feds deploying troops and shooting people that also serves as a distraction from the actual communist Labor Day, which is May 1st. That's the day associated with lefty radicalism and was dedicated to the Haymarket bombings, and people dying for it is the only reason we have an eight-hour workday today. Hopefully we don't need to send more people to die or throw bombs at any more cops to keep our eight-hour workday, but we'll see with how things are going. Uh, for the record, this is not advocating for throwing bombs at cops. Although, honestly, I do find it hilarious that they kept destroying the statue. That's comedy gold. I advocate for that. That's it. That's the podcast. You listen to the whole thing. Look at you go. Now you're at the end. Is, is, was this what you wanted? Did you learn about Labor Day? Next time I want to talk about the Pinkertons. Those dudes are wild. Like, literally, have you ever been so wild that Congress passed a law specifically against you? Because the Pinkertons have. Get ready for that. Alright, this has already gone on too long as an ending. You're great. Stop listening. It's time to turn this off.